Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Today, we're joined by Molly Davis. She's a policy analyst at Libertas Institute, a free market think tank in Utah, as well as a member of Young Voices. Molly just won the Young Voices 2019 awards. So uh, congratulations, Molly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your your origin story. How did you get involved with, uh, I said Libertas, but I think you pronounce it uh, Libertas. How do you pronounce that? Libertas Institute. Yeah, we pronounce a little bit differently than the traditional pronunciation. Yeah. Tell us how you got involved there and and with Young Voices. How did you get interest in Liberty? I uh, I started with a, a typical kind of libertarian-leaning story with uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy and Young Americans for Liberty at college, or sorry, groups in college. Um, and when I graduated, I took an internship at Libertas Institute. I kind of want to stay out near the mountains, so Utah seemed like a cool place to be, and this was an awesome opportunity. So I took an internship here in summer of 2017, and then from there, they hired me on full-time, and then about a year into it, I started writing for Young Voices program, which has been awesome opportunity. Yeah, so tell us just kind of high level what, what kind of your your areas of focus are, both at the Institute and, and for, um, for Young Voices, and then we'll kind of drill, drill down in a couple of these areas. Yeah, my main area at, uh, at Libertas Institute is criminal justice reform policy. So uh, this, this includes a lot of different aspects, um, like just at the top of my head, one bill we were able to successfully help pass last year was um, a bill to allow people to do community service in lieu of paying a fine. So this is for you know low-income people who might not be able to afford to pay their fine. They can go volunteer at a nonprofit down the road and um, at a value of $10 per hour and get that paid for. We do a lot of different things to help uh, uh, marginalized communities and things like that. So we, um, another big win that our think tank did this past year is uh, legalized medical marijuana. We helped in that campaign. So we're kind of all over the place. I also work on a lot of individual rights and privacy rights. Um, it's kind of a broader area. Since you're, you know, you write for Young Voices, I kind of want to use you as a foil. Tell us what's up with kids these days. We're seeing all these polls about uh, young people that are flirting with democratic socialism, that they're skeptical of capitalism. And, and in Reason Magazine uh, just recently, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, she had a line that according to millennials, the Democratic Party is the party of young people and Republicans are the party of the olds. Not to not to sort of necessarily conflate being uh, a Republican with uh, your school of thought, but kind of give us a you know your impression of what do kids think these days from the viewpoint of millennials and Gen Z. What's their view of what's going on politically? You know, I think a lot of people are just kind of enamored with this idea of the free college. Uh, so I guess free education in general and free medicine and healthcare for everyone. It just seems like a good idea. And I think 
some of that stems from, I guess, like the Bernie hype, uh, Bernie, Bernie bandwagon. A lot of people got on that during the 2016 elections, but also because our generation is so tied down with, with student debt right now. And a lot of times when you graduate college and you are start out, you know, maybe making 30 to anywhere from 30 to $50,000, it's not like really ample to cover all of your living costs and your high student loans and medical insurance, all of that. And so I think people from my generation are just frustrated with like costs of like starting out and the you know this this guy comes along this politician who appears to be on their side and wants to um you know make all education free and it's just a it's a really attractive message for some someone who's struggling with with student loan debt so i think that's kind of like a a one-sided view and they're not really seeing the implications beyond that because i mean for them that's the most important thing yeah i i saw you know a quote recently from uh, aoc and she made it her, her comment was that her generation had never known prosperity as an adult. And I guess she's 29 years old. I think it's a pretty provocative comment, but in some sense, as much as, you know, as much as she, people like to beat up on her, in some sense, she's right. Uh, you know, the economy has been slow. If you, if you say she's been an adult for uh, roughly eight years, up until about the last two years, it's been a pretty sluggish recovery. And so there's some truth to it. Do you think that just that the slow recovery after the recession, uh, and again, the, the massive student debt, do you think that's what's kind of putting uh, millennials into this pessimistic view that capitalism isn't working out for them? Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Right now, I think they, uh, a lot of people who I've kind of had experiences with, they they look at countries like Sweden and they look at Norway and some of these, you know, quote unquote, uh, socialist countries and they see, well, well, they get it for free. Why can't we? And I'm not sure if the whole <laughs> tax thing is hitting home for them yet, um, how much that would actually cost and how actually, you know, Sweden isn't actually a socialist country. Their market is very free. But <laughs> yeah, a lot of these different examples have gotten, kind of been politicized by AOC and Bernie Sanders. And they, they like these ideas of, I mean, who doesn't like free stuff, right? So <laughs> yeah, I think where a lot of it has spurred from. But there's also like a lot of young people who have been through college and just, I mean, if you've been on a college campus, you know that academia is kind of dominated by the left. And so when you're in school, that's kind of the message you're hearing as well. And that's like from um, 18 to 22. Uh, that's a very formative period of your life when you start to um, like be invested in politics and start to pay attention to different things. And so I think uh, that kind of has a play in it as well. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I was looking at some statistics. And one of the things that Ernst & Young, the big CPA firm, they were they were comparing some of their surveys they've done of the past few years where uh, millennials view of the economy was very negative, very pessimistic up until about two years ago. And like when they did the the same survey asking the same questions over the summer last year, that they started to see that millennials view of the economy had really started to change. And a lot of the traditional patterns of home buying, starting families and all this, were, you know, they were millennials were still behind, but they were starting to adapt to uh, starting to adopt sort of traditional patterns, if you will. So I think maybe a little bit of economic uh, growth, even though there's a lot of people saying that it's not everybody's participating, there's ways to pe for people to participate and there's ways for people to join in that growth. So I wanted to circle back to Young Voices. You're, I think one of the things that you uh, gain some I was about to say notoriety. That's wrong. Uh, this, that you were that you uh, gained some acclaim for uh, was your work in the piece on Wired magazine. 
the, the piece was on how Utah is leading the way on data privacy. Talk a little bit about that piece and the, the legislation that you were writing about. Yeah, well, first of all, credit to Young Voices. They, um, as an organization, they help young people get published and uh, develop their media skills and their writing skills. And so they really helped me along in, in um, getting published in Wired. I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. But uh, this this article that I wrote in, in Wired was based on, like you said, a law that Utah just passed that my organization and Libertas Institute and my boss, Connor Boyack, had a lot to, to do with in terms of help write it and education campaigns and push it forward. Um, so basically, we passed, the Utah legislature passed a bill this year that protects people's third-party data. And so what this means is any data that's stored in a third-party's such as Google or Dropbox, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, any app that you use on your phone, all the information that you put into it is being stored in the cloud. And in most, well, I guess every other state outside of Utah now, um, police can go ask that third-party company to access your information without a warrant. And it's up to the company to say yes or no. And uh, we said, wait, wait, wait a minute, that information should be protected. It should be private. Um, I think when, when people use their phone and they're on these apps, they kind of, they, they couldn't ever imagine that happening. They think that uh, everything they're doing is private. And so, um, so now law enforcement, if they want to have access to that data, they just can't have free range. They, they have to have a warrant to do so. I recall, uh, didn't President Obama scoff at the idea that there was a uh, any any expectation of privacy on your personal device? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it's it's interesting because not a lot of we're going into a new le- landscape of technology and data where we've never been before, and it's developing so fast, and the laws just can't keep up. And the, a lot of people wait on like court rulings to see where where they'll fall on this issue, but they are so slow to figure it out. And so Utah and our organization kind of had the stance, like we can't wait, people's liberties are on the line, their privacy is on the line, we have to move forward and pass a bill now. What about, I know you're you're thinking of, uh, I mean, this, this legislation is more on the side of uh, protecting your data from unreasonable searches. What about, uh, Personal, uh, personal privacy, data protection uh, from big tech companies themselves. Uh, what are your views on that? Yeah, that's a really difficult issue. I mean, that's something that we definitely need to delve into. That was not the focus of our bill this year. Our bill doesn't really touch that. But um, as you know, there's been a lot of scandal about that with the whole delete Facebook movement that happened in the past few years. And people are frustrated with the whole Cambridge Analytica, how Facebook sold a bunch of data to this firm who helped target ads to help Trump win the election, presumably. And the big tech company, their response is always, oh, well, once you sign up for our service, you sign terms and agreements, and you basically sign away your life. You sign away all of your rights (laughs) to privacy within that. But I mean, the pushback from a lot of the liberty moving, uh, the liberty movement groups and people has been that, yeah, but when you sign up, you never really read those terms and agreements. I mean, unless you have a lawyer by your side and have, you know, 10 extra hours to, to spare of your life. <laughs> Do you really know what you're signing up for? Is that really consent when you sign away those rights? It's something that, that definitely needs to be considered for future legislation, but uh, Utah's not quite there yet. Right. 
let's switch and talk a little bit about the other area, criminal justice reform. What are some key criminal justice reform areas that you see out there that are really important and good opportunities? Um, I think one thing that's kind of gotten a lot of attention around states recently, and I guess I'm kind of focusing on this because Montana had just had a win in this area, um, is the, the war on poverty, if you will. Um, a lot of different states, I think most states, um, they they have been dealing with people who can't afford to pay their fines and fees from like a, a parking ticket or a speeding ticket, for example. And they've been saying, okay, if you're late and you can't afford it um, and you don't come talk to a judge, we're just going to suspend your driver's license. And that's been a huge problem, I know, nationwide. And so now some, you see some states um, going in and pushing back against this notion and saying, okay, but you know, if you suspend someone's driver's license, license, you're taking away their ability to reliable transportation, which limits their ability to have good housing, a stable job, and so forth. And so how, how do you expect them to pay back the fine if you're taking away their transportation, right? So that's something Montana um, just just passed a law saying that you can no longer suspend driver's license for, um, for lack of payment in fines and fees or for court debt in more general terms, which is which is awesome. It's going to help thousands of people. I mean, if you looked at your your state's metrics, I guarantee, especially in a state like Texas, but um, you would find that thousands and thousands of people are having their driver's license suspended every single year. Actually, I'm not sure what the laws are in Texas on this, so don't quote me. But <laughs> this is a we have a similar issue in Texas with people getting their driver's license suspended and uh, not being able to pay the fees, and it's a it's a big problem there. Trying to fix it, of course, the question as often arises is, you know, it's a source of revenue. So how do you replace that revenue? Yeah. Um, so that's something that is being worked on now as the legislative term here uh, winds down because uh, we only, the legislature only meets every other year for five months. Oh, right. I forgot that they do that in Texas. It's so weird. In terms of other issues, uh, I believe uh, have you done? Have you guys done work on civil asset forfeiture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So civil asset forfeiture is basically a, a tool that allows um, law enforcement to be able to seize your property if they suspect that you are committing a crime. So they don't even have to. Um, they don't even have to get you to plead guilty or have secure a conviction. They can just take your stuff if they suspect it. So this is something that has upset a lot of people. Obviously, um, we see fragrant abuse of the, abuses of this all over the country, where you know police might suspect that you are dealing drugs in your car because they found a little bit of marijuana, and so they seize your car and then they sell it and then the law enforcement agency keeps the money for themselves. And um, that's obviously creates pretty bad incentives for law enforcement to want to partake in civil asset forfeiture. This is something that a lot of states have been going in and trying to put limits on and require uh, a criminal conviction to be gained before the state can legally keep your stuff, um, which is, I think, another common sense thing. But I guess you're talking to a a libertarian leaning person. So that's going to be my view. But um, I, I'm not sure what Texas does. I know Utah does not have a criminal conviction requirement right now. And so that's like the ultimate goal. But even any restrictions on like the incentive programs would be good. I know some states, for example, all of the the money from the forfeitures that their police get have to go into the public education fund, thereby negating the, the negative incentive to, to take people's stuff. And so that's that would be also a step in the right direction for Utah and other states, but 
hopefully criminal conviction. Hopefully it'll just, we can abolish this law altogether eventually, but that's probably not going to happen. So <laughs> not, not to hit on a controversial topic or anything, but um, if I guess it was about a year ago that Charles Cook over at National Review, uh, he was writing about some of his talks that he gives to college students. And he was making the point that marijuana decriminalization is a gateway drug to teaching millennials and, and college students about federalism and making the point that marijuana criminal laws ought to be just, you know, whether or not marijuana is, you know, should be criminalized, should be decided at the states and how that is uh, sort of a tool to explain uh, how the federal system is supposed to work. You mentioned that uh, Utah had decided to decriminalize medical marijuana. What are your thoughts in general about this idea of decriminalizing marijuana? Should it be decided at the state levels? And just what are your thoughts in general? Oh, man. I mean, I completely agree with states rights. Um, but I also believe that more importantly, we preserve individual autonomy. And I think when you have individual autonomy, you have to respect people's rights to consume what they want in a peaceful manner. If they're not hurting other people around them or not posing a dangerous threat, then why, why are we trying to criminalize people? I mean, why throw someone in jail for possessing a plant? It's a difficult one because my, my first inclination says, uh, I think it should just be legalized federally and states shouldn't have the right to dictate that. But I, I definitely understand where he's coming from because if the federal government did that with every policy, you know, that could be disastrous. And other states will have different issues that they're going to have to solve themselves when it comes up, when, uh, when different problems arise that maybe are Utah specific or Texas specific or wherever it may be. I definitely think right now the first step is definitely more important on, for me at least is is at least making sure that uh, patients who legitimately need marijuana to deal with pain or eating disorders, epilepsy, um, they they need to be able to access that without the threat of, of being thrown in prison. I mean, it's just ridiculous that we're still debating this today. Josiah, what's what's R Street's stated official position on, on weed decriminalization? Does it have one? We do not have an official position on marijuana uh decriminalization no make make news right here right now you, uh, you want me to establish a r street position on yeah that's right uh, no uh i can't do that i believe we have uh in texas right now uh there's a question of whether there was a so there was a legislation filed that would have made low-level marijuana possession a civil offense as opposed to a criminal offense that ended up getting scaled back where it's uh, would still be a criminal offense but uh it would be reduced to class C misdemeanor, I believe. So those are those are some of the um, those are some of the you know the, that's kind of the, the rain you know the gov the governor of Texas uh, has endorsed that idea of a step down and uh, that's kind of in the range of what people are talking about here in terms of our street. That's not an issue that we specifically work on, uh, although. We do work a lot in criminal justice just in terms of reentry for offenders, trying to make sure that when people get out of jail, they can get a job and be a productive member of society as opposed to having to rely on the state uh, for benefits because they make a livelihood. And that would apply, you know, not, and also uh, I think we have done some work on drug diversion programs, that sort of things. Which is awesome. Explain that a little bit. Uh, well, uh, I mean, there, so there, there's a variety of, there's a variety of different options you could do, but in general, while uh, I think that prison is an important part of the punishment options, there are some 
crimes where uh, in order to deter crime or ensure justice or ensure the safety of the community, you do, you do need to incarcerate. It is, it's, it's a, it's kind of an awesome responsibility of the state. It, it uh, is not, it's very costly and it affects uh, not only the liberty of the individual who's being imprisoned, but it has all sorts of other effects on the wider community, families, uh, workforce, um, other things like that. So it, you know, it is something that I think we would like to see to, you know, to the extent that it's compatible with public safety, incarceration used as more of a last resort. And to the extent that there are alternative ways of punishment and rehabilitation, whether that's through, you know, fines, restitution, or drug treatment programs, right? Sending someone to a treatment program in jail, uh, that's not only it's not only cheaper, but, you know, it could be uh, more likely the person would be able to get their life together and not get sucked into a long-term life of crime. Uh, so uh, where can we reform the system to make it more focused on protecting public safety and ensuring that when people do get out of jail, because most folks that are in jail or, or prison are going to get out, that they are able to return to being productive members of society and not just something, you know, uh, someone that society has to take care of. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that kind of brings me to to another point is one important thing when these people are getting out of prison, we need to incentivize good behavior to make sure that they actually can reacclimate. And one way to do that is to expunge their criminal record after a number of years have gone by with good behavior. They have followed the, the terms of their probation or parole, paid all of their fines off. Um, we should definitely, depending on the crime, but especially for misdemeanors, we should be considering automatically expunging their records, which is uh, a policy that that Utah passed this year as well. Yeah, I was going to say that I, I would have thought that uh, our street, at least you, Josiah, would promote, would support the uh, decriminalization of uh, marijuana as long as you could slap a carbon tax on it. Uh, well, you know, maybe as sometimes as I walk around Austin, I, I, I think uh, uh, I have other feelings. <laughs> <laughs> so I had uh, I had the pleasure of uh, doing a bit of hiking in Utah, uh, I guess about two months ago. Uh, would love to go back. What are some advice for some good places to go hiking in Utah? Oh, gosh, it really depends what you want. <laughs> um, up north, we have all of the mountains, the Wasatch Front, uh, the Uintas, which is a lot of the, the pine trees and the mountains, kind of less um, less exposed peaks. So that's great for camping. I I mean, honestly, any of the hikes along the the Wasatch Front and the mountains are great. But also, if you're looking for like national parks, I'm not sure what my favorite is. But I really do think everyone needs to see Bryce and Zion at least once. Uh, Bryce is like the, the red rocks and the hoodoos. And Zion is just these massive hikes and peaks with rivers running through. It's, it's beautiful. So <laughs> that's kind of the, you have to do all of it eventually. <laughs> Yeah, so so Zion is where we went, and it was beautiful because day one it was raining. It had been raining for days, but it was raining that day. And so as we're driving in, the the park ranger says there's hundreds of waterfalls, which sounds like an exaggeration. I'm pretty sure it wasn't an exaggeration. There's basically waterfalls coming off of everything. 
But then by day two, it was clear. And so you got to see it both ways, where it was just waterfalls everywhere and kind of overcast. And then day two was bright and sunny. So it was just absolutely beautiful. Oh, yes. That sounds amazing. I've already been to Zion twice this year. I need to need to get down there again. <laughs> Did she do Angel's Landing? No. Um, it, I think because of the weather, it was going to be, it was a cold, slippery. I'm not even sure if that trail was even open that day. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I have a question for you guys. Because you guys brought up the, um, you know, the controversial topic of marijuana. What do you think uh, yesterday, Denver, Colorado voted to legal or to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms? See, I was thinking about asking you that same question <laughs> just because I wanted to see if you could pronounce it, uh, because I would totally be guessing. How to pronounce <laughs> that. You know, I, I, I definitely have to say I'm not an expert on drug policy or I guess more specifically on, you know, the the social effects, the side effects of particular drugs. But, you know, I, I have to say it's, for me, it, it's just a matter of why would this be illegal? Yeah. If it's, and you know, what I would want to see if I were making criminal laws, where's where's the actual harm? What's the likelihood of, of actually harming society? Um, and so to me, I, I can't say that I've got a complete, you know, that my mind's made up because I haven't studied the side effects of this particular drug. But to me, I, I my position on this, this sort of thing is I'm happy for Colorado to be a laboratory of democracy. And if it goes well, maybe other states will follow. But if it doesn't go well, let them go first. So um, I guess I'm sort of in favor of prudential change. Let things uh, happen slowly, see how other states do it. But all in all, I, I actually lean towards decriminalizing. Woo, that's what I like to hear. I know they, it was only, um, so the results came in, I'm looking right now on the election page, it is Ordinance 301 for those listening, but the percentage, it was uh, 89,320 yes votes and 87,341 votes. So a 50.56 to a 49.44 percentage. <laughs> So very a few thousand people uh, made that difference of the vote. So I can't believe it. I'm like in shock that I'm actually seeing someone uh, decriminalize this, which is like for me, I think it's an awesome step in the right direction for criminal justice reform. It kind of just goes back to the the notion that we shouldn't be locking people up or spending spending resources on people who are just peacefully consuming drugs on their own time. Josiah, I know you want to come in on this. I guess the only thing I would say is I, I believe there there is uh, some evidence that the use of these sorts of, uh, I don't know about this specific sort of psychedelic mushroom, I believe so, but that there's so, so there's some evidence that some of these sorts of psychedelics can be very useful in the treatment of uh, depression and other uh, mental disorders. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard like PTSD as well. It's like awesome for that. It just it's been illegal for so long. So how can we like legitimately test it aside from going through an organization like like MAPS, the multidisciplinary, I think, Association for Psychedelic Studies is what the acronym right, is. Right, yeah. Well, on that note, go chill out. And uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun.